Hey, dear listener, Anthony here. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to let you know about an incredible new resource we just released, The Five Rules of Investing. Dan and I are huge advocates of modeling the behaviors of the people who have done what you hope to do. And who better to model when it comes to investing than legendary investors like Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, and Ray Dalio? This free ebook breaks down the simple time-tested strategies of billionaire real estate investors that you can use to take your investing to the next level. So head over to InvictusMultifamily.com and grab your ebook today. All right, now let's hop into the show. Hey, welcome to Multifamily Investing Made Simple. This is the show where we take the complexity out of real estate investing so that you can start taking action today. I am your co-host, Anthony Vecino of Invictus Capital, joined as always by my partner in crime, Dan Kruger. How's it going, Dan? Doing good. How about you? Uh, Yeah, doing great, actually. No complaints. We're still in quarantine, and every day that quarantine goes on is another day where I get to live my best life of introverted status yes feels like sunday already yesterday felt like saturday i i'm losing track of days to be honest yeah. with you it's it's getting trickier you know when you work every single day regardless of the day of the week anyway like we typically do all of a sudden you take out the fact that we can't really have in-face meetings anymore and days just kind of become irrelevant mm-hmm. yeah i haven't worn pants in a month what are pants <laughs> what are these things <laughs> i have just been rocking jorts do you know what jorts are I am aware of their existence. Yeah, just I didn't jean know it was shorts, shorts for days. season yet. Is it? It's not, but in my, in my office, it is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, every every day is casual Friday here. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Dan, today we're 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 going to talk about uh, market selection, how to pick a market to invest in, which is a really big topic because. Real estate's all about location, location, location. So we're going to break that down. But before we get to that, do you want to bring the fire for this week's bad investing tip? Yeah, I love bad advice. Oh, God, I love it. So today's horrible, horrible advice is um, cash is king. Move to cash. Cash is king. Nah, what what was it uh, just last week or so? What is it? Ray Dalio, I think, was like, cash is trash. That was like a month or two ago. Was that a while ago? Yeah. Okay. I'm just, I live it's been, behind the curve. Yeah. It's been uh, re-shared quite a bit because for some reason people found that statement surprising. Um, like what? Yeah. Because uh, usually people say cash is king. Like that's like mm-hmm. the best, like strongest, safest asset, right? That if you got all your money sitting under a mattress, you can't lose any money, right? Because cash can't go down. But you know, there's a little thing called inflation, which... Uh, is like a uh, silent, sneaky little tax that sneaks into your bank account while you're sleeping and and uh, doesn't really eat away at the value of your money. It, well, I should let me rephrase. It doesn't really okay. eat away at the balance of your money, but it eats away at your buying power. Basically, the, my the, the reason for that that bad advice, cash is king, is to reiterate the fact that cash is not something that you want to have your uh, your wealth in because inflation is rampant, especially when every central bank around the world is printing money like crazy. We've printed trillions in the past month. And what that means is the money supply gets bigger and every dollar that's out there is incrementally worth a little bit less. So organically over the next couple of years here, we're going to see uh, prices on things start to kind of tick up. And that dollar that you have today isn't going to buy as much uh, tomorrow. 
did today, and that's going to continue into the future. So what you want to do is try to move your wealth into things that ideally appreciate and value and pay cash flow. If you're using cash as an investment, <laughs> it's not even an investment vehicle of any sort, but if you're holding on to cash, putting it into a savings account with the idea that it's at least not losing money as if it was in the stock market or if it was invested in some other opportunity that's maybe losing value, mm-hmm. well, that's just simply wrong. That's the wrong way of looking at it. Inflation is eating away at its its buying power. You know, one of the, the powers of cash is the fact that if you have cash, you can take advantage of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where the real power of cash comes in. Like if you have enough in the coffers to be able to withstand rough seas, but also to capitalize on buying opportunities when they present themselves. And so that's really a matter of liquidity and being able to jump on opportunities when they present themselves. So like right now, if we were completely levered, all our money was gone into assets at the moment, and we had no money in the bank, it might be very difficult for us to to move on to an opportunity that came across our table right now, short of you know syndicating that that opportunity with outside investors. So there is something to be said about cash, but that's not just keeping cash in the checking account and, and being happy with, with the returns that you're getting from that. Yeah, and there's other ways that you can have your cash invested in other assets uh, other than cash. You can move your wealth into things other than cash where it still is accessible and liquid and you can tap into mm-hmm. it when you need to. So there's no reason to have it just sitting in your bank account. Definitely. I usually recommend people have, you know, about uh, you know a few weeks uh, worth of uh, monetary needs in their checking account, maybe a month. But then anything more than that, their, their savings, their rainy day fund should be in at least at the very least, a high-yield savings account. Uh, last year, those were paying about 2.2%, which was you know on par with what inflation is quoted at, even though it's, it's higher. But it still mitigates inflation a little bit. Having a few months' worth of expenses in that, where it's ultra-liquid, and then anything beyond that where you uh, think you might want to use it in the near term to invest in something else in a slightly less liquid but still accessible resource. And that could be like a, a life insurance policy you can tap into. It could be in um, like a stock portfolio you can borrow against if it's invested in something that's that's somewhat safe. So you don't just, I'm just, I, I get frustrated when I see people with very large balances of cash in a checking account. It frustrates me. I, I probably keep a bit more in my checking account than is prudent. I like to keep two and a half months of working capital. So that's keeping, that's two and a half months worth of baseline expenses. And then I keep about three to six months worth of emergency day funds in, you know, high yield. Not oh, I used to keep it in a high yield savings account. Now I keep it more into a portfolio of just stocks and bonds because it's really unlikely that I'm gonna need that in the short term, but have the ability to get to it when needed. Yeah, and I should say that uh, all the stuff I've been saying here is directed more at individuals. If you're running a business, your cash management strategies will differ quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So this isn't necessarily how we manage the cash for our investments in Invictus. This is just me personally. People are not businesses and businesses are not people. So treat them differently. Okay, so let's get to this week's uh, topic. Let's let's talk through market selection uh, from the perspective of both active and passive investors. For us, you know, we invest predominantly here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, so Minneapolis and St. Paul and first string suburbs. And so we know our market from a, a macro standpoint. But there's a lot of different ways to break up market selection. You could be looking at the large MSA or the city, the state that you're looking at. But then real estate's also very hyper local. So getting down to the neighborhood level. Let's take it from like the, the 50,000 foot view first and then work our way all the way down to the street level. 
market selection, what types of things you should be looking at. And this is going to be valuable information if you're actively investing and trying to figure out, hey, where should I be uh, putting my money? And then also if you're a passive investor, one of the great things about being passive is that you're not locked into a singular market. You do have the ability to go to where you think the, the markets are going to offer the best returns, the most deal flow, and there's good operators there. But for us, because we're vertically integrated, it's a bit more advantageous. And we realize the synergies of scale by grouping our properties in a similar area. So we don't do too much of the global market research. So this is going to be a little bit foreign for us, but we'll talk through it. Like you said, they're starting at 50,000 foot views. Pretty much how I like to approach just about any task. I start real high level and then work my way down into the details. So the first thing that someone would want to consider when investing is question number one is, is multifamily uh, a prudent investing vehicle right now? Is this something based on the economic cycle and uh, the uh, the real estate cycle from a whole? Is it is it a good place to put money from a really high level? Because if it fails that test, then you can just stop researching markets and move on to something else. Well, I can save you guys time. Just take that money, put it under your mattress. Yeah. That's going to be best Cash for you. Yeah. So. so yeah, first first thing you always have to do just make sure that the asset class that you are starting to dig into is positioned well to perform. So right now, real estate is, if you've watched any of our content, uh, I should say multifamily is, if you've watched any of our content, we've already gone over in great detail why this asset class is well positioned for the for the future. But that is always a, a question you want to ask yourself before you start down this rabbit hole. Is, is, is multifamily a good place to look? And then when you determine that it is, you can start to zero in on um, the type of multifamily uh, A-class, brand new builds, um, you know, B-class, uh, the stuff that was A-class like 10 or 15 years ago, but has just started to age out a little bit or is a little bit out of the hotter neighborhoods, but still pretty nice. And then C-class, which is kind of like uh, workforce housing, typically a little bit more urban, doesn't have the amenities that the A-class buildings do, but uh, provide um, a price point that is very in demand right now. And then there's the hood. D-class. We're not so much of a fan of the D-class. It's scary there. Yeah. You know, the one exception that would be like a D building in like a C or B neighborhood. Those could Absolutely. present really great opportunities. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know, a, a D neighborhood and a D building. It's like, what's the upside there? Um, unless there's some mm-hmm. major gentrification that you see coming down the pipeline. Yeah. Some kind of economic expansion in that area mm-hmm. in the short term, like a new arena going in across the street or something like that. Like, yeah. There has to be some pretty big reason why that area is going to shift. Yeah, and it, it does happen. I mean, the neighborhood I live in now is mm-hmm. an A neighborhood, and a few blocks over, uh, it, it used to be a D neighborhood about 10 years ago. Um, it was just uh, strip clubs, a couple dive bars, and a bunch of warehouses. And now it's completely converted into new build apartments and condos, and all the best restaurants are here. But four blocks over, it's the exact same as it was 10 years ago. So mm-hmm. this neighborhood in particular, you know, that line is slowly kind of shifting as neighborhood gets developed. There's, you know, it's pretty condensed right now. We can only spread out when these new developments come in. So that line is kind of inching. So if you want to try to position yourself on that line, right, where you're still in the D neighborhood, but in like two or three years, that 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 gentrification is going to spread into your area. That's a, a viable option too. But you know, back on topic, once you kind of identify the multifamily is a good place to be and you like, you know, let's say uh, C or B class or whatever you, you kind of hone in on, then it's time to start to, to uh, try to pick your market because there is a mm-hmm. 
a lot of options out there, 50 states and thousands of uh, smaller markets within. Yeah. One of the first questions you're going to need to answer then is the question of, do I invest locally in the market that I'm in or do I invest out of state? To answer those questions, you're one, going to need to evaluate your particular investing style. Are you the type of person that needs to see the property? If you are hiring out a third-party property management team and you have maybe a partner who's boots on the ground in a different city, then it can work to invest out of state. But if you are the type of person who needs to have that control and access to the to that physical property so that you can look at it and take control as needed, then that might not be so conducive for your personality type. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be one of the first questions just to answer off the bat is, between investing locally or out of state, which one fits better with your personality? Then moving on from there, I would say, well, is your city even a viable locale for investing for the type that you're interested in? Yeah. Whether that's passive investing or active investing. If you're living in San Francisco, might not be the best market, all told. Yeah. <laughs> Same really, with Manhattan. Really Manhattan, LA. You know, these markets are very overpriced, high cost of living, very high barrier to entry. And as we're going to talk about later, there's some economic factors occurring in those cities in particular and some regulatory factors that actually make them quite difficult to operate real estate. And so they don't really make it conducive to to invest there. So that's one question is, hey, is the city that you're actually in, is it a city that you can invest in and achieve returns. Yeah, and usually if you if you skip these steps and you just start looking at deals in your backyard and you're in one of these hot neighborhoods, you're going to probably notice when you start to try to underwrite these that there's no money coming out of them. None. <laughs> if you pay the prices they're going for, you know, you're lucky if you break even. And that's uh that's that's not a good investment strategy where getting lucky to break even is, is your your outcome and you know to kind of back up a little bit to what you were saying about um, determining whether you want to be in your na- in your backyard or out of state somewhere uh, the same boat is true for passive investors right it's going to be a little bit different uh, considerations to make you're not going to be managing the property obviously you're not going to be doing the work but maybe you like being close to the operator uh, maybe like having that personal relationship with the operator where you don't necessarily want to go find somebody on the internet who you've never uh, met before, who's investing in an area you've never been before. You still like the proximity and, and feeling comfortable that like, okay, this guy's investing over in that neighborhood. I've been there. I know the area. I know the guy. I can go to his office. I can see him in person. So some people, I know on, uh, you know, on some of our deals, I've got investors in there that are, are investing with us and would not be investing with someone out of state who they've never met before in an area that they've never been to before. That's just not their style. So that's that's something to consider as well is if you're a passive investor, do you care about that proximity to the deal and the operator or not? It's kind of six one way, half dozen the other. It's really just a matter of personality. It's a personality thing. Yeah. And this goes back to the the vetting operators episode that we did a couple weeks back. If you review back to there, it's finding operators that have an alignment of interest and personality. And understanding what your investing criteria is mm-hmm. as an individual. And maybe it doesn't even work for you to invest out of state. For, for me right now, it, it's not, it's not really in alignment with my goals or my desires mm-hmm. and my personality type. So it's off the tables for me. So I'm kind of stuck with where we're at. It just happens to be that the Twin Cities is a, is a pretty great market for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. We can, we're going to break those down here in a little bit, but let's, let's move now. Let's say we are looking at a market. Maybe we're not even sure if our city is a good fit. What are some of the things that we're going to be looking for? Really, for for me, it kind of comes down to 
three macro areas. That's economic factors that are kind of guiding the the larger metropolis. So that's things like population growth, unemployment rates, wages, and if those are increasing, net absorption rates. And we can break all that down as we talk through that. And then some other factors are the regulatory and then just local market factors. So let's take it from that top view of economics and talk through what are some of the, the metrics and key indicators that would point to is this city or MSA worth investing in or putting time and energy into? Well, I think um, you kind of hit the nail on the head with the way you listed those off, I should say, in the order you listed them off, because this is something that is driven by larger economic forces, right? It comes down to some basic economic supply and demand. So if you've got population increasing, um, that's one side of the equation. That's great. Uh, the next thing you need to look at with respect to the population increasing is um, what is the supply side of housing look like? How much uh, new construction is taking place? That's kind of a, a, a leading indicator as to how that equilibrium or lack of equilibrium in the supply demand imbalance is going to look down the road. So you can look at both the population increasing and also look at what the current supply is as far as housing and look at how much new construction is taking place and whether or not those new constructions are getting absorbed quickly. So um, it's not necessarily just looking at the population, but it's also the, the supply side too. Because if that if there's more than enough supply and the population is increasing, then you know, you're not going to see the kind of um, organic appreciation that you would see in a place where like going back to New York and San Francisco, part of the, the issue there is there's limited supply. And that's why the price keeps going up there. You know, San Francisco, they just don't, they don't like to build there uh, due to the political environment. So the supply is very limited and people keep going there because that's kind of the, the tech hub now. So you've got these skyrocketing prices. And we'll go into detail on why that still that doesn't make it a good investing vehicle because uh, it sounds like prices going up. That should be good, right? Uh, but it's kind of the same thing in, in New York, right? Limited supply. There's only so much land. There's limits on how tall they can build their buildings. Um, and people just want to keep going there. So if there's a, there's got to be that right mix of supply and demand as far as the number of people coming in and the number of units available. The, the affordability index is going to play a large part in that as well. Uh, what's the median income and versus the, the median household expenditure on rent mm-hmm. and housing? Okay, so from the top, some things that you're going to look for in terms of economic factors. Let's take a city and we're going to look at their population total. So first is that you want to make sure that you're you're looking at a market that has enough people for it to be statistically relevant. I would say MSAs under 30,000 are starting to get pretty small and suburban and, you know, a little bit more rural. Mm -hmm. And so for us, those aren't like super stable pockets. We're looking for population that's growing over time. And if you if you have a population that's shrinking within not necessarily just a one win, a one year window, but say over a ten or fifteen year window, losing population is a very bad sign. It points to there's some underlying reasons like why do people not want to live there? Is there economic? Uh, there's just not enough jobs. It's not paying well enough. Like is what's happening there that's causing people to leave? And so right now, if you look at say our historical tech bubbles like San Francisco or L.A., a lot of these places that are high cost of living, and they really attract a particular demographic of individuals. In the last couple of years, we've really been seeing a net export of individuals leaving those cities. And so they're actually uh, losing population. And that population is going to places like Phoenix, it's going to Austin, and to these kind of sunbelt cities that are a little bit more favorable for business and operations, because California is a very hard state to operate in for, for a business. And then cost of living goes a lot further 
when you're not living in those really high expense areas as well. And so those are the questions asked, like what's the, what's the total population and is it growing over time or is it shrinking? And that can tell you quite a bit. Next would be the economic diversity. If the city itself is dependent on one or two primary industries, Detroit is a great example of this with automotive. They were highly leveraged in that one particular industry. And then when it kind of, when it collapsed and everything kind of moved away, well, it all left with Detroit. And so Detroit, even many, many years later, still is really suffering because they haven't made up for that economic monopolization that they were operating under. So when we're looking at economic diversity, do you want to, do you have anything to add to that in terms of how much economic diversity, what types of things point to an economically diverse city? Yeah, well, in addition to seeing uh, diversity, you also want to make sure that the types of industries that are making up a large part of that uh, local economy are ones that are going to be using a coronavirus term um, uh, necessary or what is the word we're using these days uh, for people that, that essential essential yes yeah, so essential. you know having like um, universities and healthcare and like you know hospitals and universities like they're not going to go away right um, if you've got this really big uh, population of like you know like tech or something like that that can shift pretty quickly and start to move somewhere else you know it's good now mm-hmm. but it's it's not necessarily always going to be there we saw this happen with the automotive industry so you want to make sure that there's a good foundation of the the type of stuff that's not really going to leave like healthcare it's always going to need to be there uh education's a good one as well and then having a good breadth of other industries too. Uh, like in our area, for example, we've got a lot of Fortune 500 companies. We've got General Mills, Target, 3M, tons of different companies in different sectors where if there's a little shakeup in, in one sector, one company, it's not really going to drastically impact the local economy too much. We would either have to see a major economic shakeup that would change things. Yeah. I mean, we're just really pretty diversified here. So, so I like to yeah. see a, a good foundation of those types of jobs that theoretically shouldn't be going anywhere, even as technology evolves and, and, and things change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfect. The moving from there, then you're also looking at median income. That's going to play a really big factor when you start looking at affordability and comparing the two. So are people actually making enough to live in the type of asset class that you are looking at investing in Mm -hmm. to that then is also the unemployment rate which in the last couple of years hasn't been such a big metric because across the country unemployment rate has been very very low right now as we're living through COVID-19 and unemployment rates are really spiking it's going to create an aberration in the data set so it's hard to create a lot of I wouldn't even look at it for yeah it's going to be hard to create meaningful judgment off of it based off in this year but Historical unemployment rates can be really helpful too, can point to is this an economically diverse economy. You, you had mentioned this before, but I don't think you gave a very, a, a deep enough definition of it, but the net absorption rate mm-hmm. of the, of the city. Do you, do you want to just kind of break that down a little bit deeper? Cause that can actually be a really key indicator for, you know, the supply demand curve. Yeah. So what typically happens is, um, builders tend to just keep building until uh way after they <laughs> yep. should have stopped um yep about a year and a half too long <laughs> so that's that's typically what happens so well, one thing to look at is whether or not the units that are getting constructed in any given year are actually getting absorbed and if you start to see 
absorption start to trail off, that could be a good leading indicator that there's about to be a supply and demand imbalance where there's more supply than there is demand, and that's going to organically put downward pressure on on, on values. So, you know, keep that in mind. Um, seeing a lot of new constructions at first can look like, wow, this place is booming. Everyone wants to be here. They're building a bunch of new stuff. But if no one's uh, showing up to buy it, then it's just going to make things have to go on sale eventually. So mm-hmm. it's a good uh, leading yeah. indicator. And just keep in mind, builders will always just keep building until it's it's painfully obvious that they should have stopped. So and that part of that's just due to the lead time. Exactly. I was gonna say in their defense, they're dealing with really long lead times. Yeah. And then when the market when it finally becomes evident that the absorption rate is falling be- below the the amount of new product coming online, it's yeah, they're too deep. Yeah, these projects usually start years before they break ground on something. So, you know, they've already committed uh, so much capital and time into things that by the time they actually start physically building something, uh, it's you know probably a, at least one, if not two years after the fact that they initially had the, the plan to do it. So it's one of the risks of that side of the business. I think they all understand it, that uh, it just keeps working till it doesn't. And then on that deal where it isn't working, it's that's just kind of the one they've got to take a hit on. So let's talk resources now. So th- as we're talking about economic factors for a particular city, where can somebody go to get more information on those statistics? I think Google is a really helpful one, first of all. There's also a couple of reports, industry-wide reports that come out mm-hmm. annually. The the Bricadia report is a really great snapshot of time looking backwards. And then I think Marcus and Millichap also does an annual report that's also high quality. Gives you a pretty good perspective on on what to expect with that particular city. Yeah, when I shot a video on this topic a few months back, I recommended uh, three reports. And I recommended looking at them in a particular order based on that top-down approach that we like to take. So when you're initially kind of doing your your analysis, so to speak, on just the, the multifamily market in general and just trying to get a, a really wide picture of, of what the economic environment looks like from a whole, like a national level, the IRR viewpoint report is a really great um, high-level, mm. just big-picture uh, summation of everything that's that's going on. So that's really the place that I like to have people start is that report. And it's pretty comprehensive. It does go into uh, individual markets to some degree. But once they kind of read through that and they really understand where we're at fundamentally in, in the cycle, both the economic cycle and the real estate specific cycle, then they start to say, okay, now how do I start nailing down some specific markets that I like? And you'll get a little taste of it in the IRA report, but then the Marcus and Millichap National Apartment Report is great because it starts to devote more more pages, more content to um, the submarkets, or I shouldn't say the uh, the, the submarkets, but the um, uh, the major the metropolitan yeah, the specific metro areas. So they start to break down their whole report into metro areas, which is nice, and you can start to form um, some ideas about what markets you might like. And then the milk and best performing cities report. Uh, provides a lot of just city-specific data. And it's the nice part about that one is it ranks things um, so that you can see how certain cities line up relative to each other based on certain criteria. So, you know, by the time you get to the Marcus and Millichap report, you've probably identified a handful of markets that you like. And then by the time you get to the Milk and Best Performing Cities report, you can see, okay, if I were to list these cities uh, based on these certain criteria, 
you know, which one's first place, which one's fifth, which one's 10th, or which one's not even in the top 10. So then you can, by the time you get to that last report, then you can really start to kind of rank things and pick out your your favorite areas based on whatever criteria you, you pick. We'll link to those reports in the show notes. So all the resources that we're going to talk about throughout the show, we'll link to in the in the show notes. So check those out. Yeah, I think that pretty much nails down the economic factors that you're going to be looking at, unless you have a couple extras that you want to throw in there. There's something I was going to add in a little bit ago. I think that's pretty you much it. Look at, you could look at vacancy rates, but mm-hmm. again, that kind of ties a little bit into the absorption and into the uh, yeah. unemployment. But that's a good number too, yeah. is vacancy rates. Yeah. So moving on then to next next step is regulatory factors guiding that particular city or area that you're looking to invest in. And this is this one can be a pretty big one. So this would include things like property taxes. You know, in some cities that's going to look very different than in other places. That could be insurance rates if you're investing in a place that's prone to natural disasters or flooding or tornadoes or hurricanes. You know, insurance is going to be very, very different than if you're in Minnesota <laughs> where Really, I think the only natural disasters we really worry about too much up here are blizzards. At least in the um, city, as you get out, the city itself, yeah, there's tornadoes and stuff, but they don't tend to hit. And then you're, and then you're also going to be looking at um, landlord tenant laws, Mm -hmm. and just looking at is this a favor? Is this city easy to operate in? Is it skewed friendly towards tenants or Mm -hmm. towards landlords? So you'll notice, interestingly, a lot of those cities that we've talked about—San Francisco, L.A., New York—and they have net uh, people leaving. They're very high cost of living. They're also incredibly friendly to tenants mm-hmm. and very difficult for landlords to operate in. All these factors are gonna are gonna play into one another, and you really want to understand that going in. So a good leading indicator too with that um, uh, landlord tenant relationship issue there is you know if 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 you start to see while you're doing your research on markets if you start to see how should I phrase this. If you start to see the the median income increasing at a rate, or no, let me rephrase this. If you start to see the cost of renting uh, increasing at a rate uh, drastically higher than the uh, median income, or if you see that the cost of to live somewhere is 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 really outpacing how much people make, that's a good leading indicator that mm. that area might be. Uh, at risk of turning into one of those places that's a little bit more tenant friendly. And what happens in those areas is they start to put limits on how much you can increase the rent. Rent control. Yeah, rent control. And then also there's going to be a lot more laws about um, you know, things you can do as a landlord uh, as a tenant and they turn into more tenant friendly, uh, which is great for tenants. But from an investing perspective, it really puts kind of like a ceiling above what you're able to to make there. So if you start to see that that cost of living you know, go up like this and um, people's incomes aren't really keeping pace with that, that is probably a red flag that even if it isn't uh, a tenant-friendly area now, it might be in the future. Yeah, I would actually counter a little bit of that, the, the idea that if a city is tenant-friendly, that that's actually a net good thing, say, for the tenants. On, on In theory, it is. But for me, it really comes down to there's three different ways a city or uh, municipality might be friendly towards tenants. That's going to be rent control. Mm-hmm. And I think rent control typically is a very tenant friendly thing. That's a, a net good thing for them. But some other ways a city might be pro tenant and less pro landlord are going to be in terms of evictions and how easy it is to evict tenants. 
then also screening parameters. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing in Minneapolis is some new ordinances have come down recently that limit the types of screening you can do on new applicants. So they're limiting, can you look at their credit score or their past felony history? My feelings on that subject is if you reduce the ability to screen quality tenants and you also make it difficult to evict, then what you you can have happen is you create a negative community environment for the other tenants. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, I was thinking more so of the rent controls. I'm not saying it was yeah. for tenants, but yeah, if, Definitely. You, if you decrease the quality of the tenant base by way of just letting anybody in, on paper, that sounds good. But in practice, I think you have nailed that, is you're going to bring the quality of your tenant base down. You know, if you're not able to yeah. weed out those people that have a history of being evicted and causing riffraff and Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're really creating a unsafe environment for the other tenants. And and so that's why I just wanted to clarify that because a lot of times the tenant-friendly ordinances are passed under the guise of being tenant-friendly. But if you really break them down, it's it's really not that. Yeah. It's, yeah. And a lot of tenants actually, if if they really understand that, they go, wait, what do you mean I might be living next to a, a felon? I, I would prefer to know that or to understand yeah. like what I'm getting into. So. That's that's one thing to to look into uh, in terms of regulatory factors. Is there anything else to to throw in there? I don't think so. What, I mean, what can you do to maybe look into property insurance rates or tax uh, property tax rates? What can a person do to say like, is this city that I'm looking at does it have high insurance rates or high tax rates? Uh, we can easily get a quote on any property you're potentially looking at. So you know, if your agent that you work with right now is able to provide that in a a different state that's great if not they could probably put you in touch with a representative in that state and it you know takes all of a couple minutes to get a quote on a potential property and you just need some high level information it's not going to be exact but it's going to get you really close um just some basic specs in the building and um, that'll give you a good idea of, of what kind of ballpark you should be looking at and then as far as taxes go you can look that up really easily all the historical taxes for any property are going to be out there and you can look at um uh, look up something called a mill rate, which is a good way to back in to what the future taxes are going to be based on uh, theoretical purchase price. You know, using good old Google is a good way to find out if there's anything new coming out of the pipeline in those areas as well. Because I know recently if there was a change in um, uh, Chicago for property taxes. I can't remember the details about it, but I mean, the news about it was out there long before it actually passed. So quick Google search on uh, on those topics, we'll be able to let you know if there's anything coming. You can set up a Google Alerts for certain keywords. Mm-hmm. This might be a really good idea if you're looking to invest out of state. You don't have boots on the ground, and so maybe you don't have your ear to the ground. For a case in point right now, St. Paul, Minnesota, where we invest is going through – they're trying to make some changes to tenant-landlord regulations. And so we're local, and so we can keep our, our fingers on that pulse and know exactly what's happening. But it's moving very quickly – in a lot of ways. And so if you're out of state, you might not be aware of it until after the fact. Mm-hmm. But if you go and set up some Google alerts that say things like St. Paul landlord laws, and you get alerted anytime a new article comes out that says anything about St. Paul landlord laws, then you can stay abreast of that. So that might be a, a little hidden hack for people looking to invest out of state just to, just to keep, a, keep a pace of what's happening in your market. Good old Google. Love Google. R- really, this whole episode should just boil down to, hey, Go find a market. Go Google it. <laughs> Just Google it. www.google.com. Bet. 
best oh. podcast ever. <laughs> <laughs> I've had someone, right. I've had someone do that to me. Who was I talking to recently? Um, it was that lawyer when we had that, that trademark issue with, um, this <laughs> was hilarious, not related at all, but I got to tell you when we had that issue with Invictus and, and Veritas, uh, one of the patent attorneys I was trying to get in contact with that took forever to get back to me, called me back. <laughs> I, uh, his suggestion was to go to www.google.com <laughs> and search for the name we're thinking about and see what pops up. I was like, thanks. I'll try was that. He being facetious? Was he was he being facetious? No, he's really old. He's a really old guy. So I think he was. I think, I think he was legitimately thinking he was helping out because he probably Aww. just figured out this Google thing recently. But uh, it's been a while since someone has actually said www. I, I enjoyed it. I you it said the fun. full URL like that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, thanks. It's really helpful. <laughs> I don't think so, he's going to be watching yeah, this. Something tells me that's like for the rest of you listeners at home. Take it, take it to heart. You can find anything on Google. Mm-hmm. Like honestly, if you have questions, feel free to shoot us an email. If we don't know the answer, chances are we just went to Google it, yep. and then we're just going to pass it along. So, <laughs> okay, so we've hit economic factors that you want to look at. We've hit regulatory factors. Now we're going to get down to the hyper local level of neighborhoods and what to look on a neighborhood by neighborhood level. And that's going to be things such as neighborhood safety, quality of schools, access to public transportation, proximity to say shopping and recreation, like how close are you to a Starbucks or to a Target? Or are you right around the corner from a 7-Eleven? Those tell you very different things about your neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then density of competition. Are you dead smack dab in the middle of 50 other complexes identical to the one that you're hoping to acquire or are you in fact the only building of your type as far as the eye can see yeah yeah well i mean i'll take it back to google right away but for those of you who are not <laughs> local google street view is an amazing tool amazing. i mean i can't imagine doing this before that because before you take the time to really physically go somewhere uh if you actually do that you can really get a really good sense of just you know kind of going around the area on google street view and just looking at the general quality of the other buildings or houses in the area because like the the, the offering memorandum you get from a broker is always going to make everything look amazing but if you drop your little thing down on the street in google and start kind of looking around at the surroundings you know you might see you know a, a car up on some cinder blocks or you might see um a bunch of you know recently re- renovated uh buildings or houses right next door right so really gives you a lot of insight just look at the types of cars that are there the types of buildings and then to what you mentioned you know is it a check cashing place that's nearby or is it a starbucks right is it mm-hmm. uh, is it a lower end grocery store is it a whole foods right those are all fine but having those uh, those higher end items there is a good indication that there's going to be positive change in the area right starbucks and whole foods and those types of places spend a lot of money determining where to put their locations so if they pick a spot to put one of their locations and it's not like the hottest neighborhood there's a really good chance that they know something that you don't about what's coming down the pipeline in that area so that's a very exciting thing when you see that first whole food show up or you know when you see it switch from a check cashing place to a starbucks that's that's a sign of gentrification that's a good sign yeah yeah google street view is a fantastic resource another one i would highly recommend is uh, www.city-data.com. <laughs> is there an HTTP 
colon double slash. Uh, there is a HTTPS okay. colon oh, backslash. <laughs> yeah, it's super secure. I'm sure, I'm sure it is actually. City data is going to be a great resource. You can go and find population growth on a on a very narrow band. So we're not just talking like the whole city. You can get down granular street by street to the the smallest parcel levels and say, okay, in this neighborhood, is the population growing? Is it declining? You can also look up income growth. You can look at median house values and how that compares to median income, which is a critical ratio to understand because if the house value is far and away above the median income, then people are going to have a hard time affording it. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, if they're making way more than the median house value in that area, then maybe you're not going to be attracting the tenants that you want. Yeah. And same for rents too. If you're looking at average rents relative to income, you want to look for areas where it's uh, more expensive to buy something. Uh, And and a perfect situation is it's going to be really cheap to rent and there's some room to still raise those rents where it's still very Mm -hmm. affordable, but cheaper than buying. That's kind of like the holy grail of um, elements in your favor as a, a property owner. Yeah, and Rentometer is a great resource for that. There's a couple others that you can go and look up um, just just to get a, a high-level ballpark view. Take it with a grain of salt, because yeah. that uh, Rentometer is it's just that it doesn't really assess comps well. It, it brings up similar it, it brings up rentals in the same area. But if you've got a C-class building, like actually take the time to Google the address it pulls up because it won't show you the address on Rentometer or it won't show you pictures of the building. It'll just say, hey, there's another two bedroom down the block that's renting for 1500 and yours mm, is 900 Google that address and make sure it's not something that was built like six months ago and you're looking at a property that's 40 years old, right? Because mm. it'll show, it'll shoot that out there and that little dial that gives you, that looks like a speedometer, might make it look like you're really under the market rent, but it doesn't take into account if you're put in a C-class building. It's just going to pull up everything that's got a comparable floor plan, basically. That's, that's a really good point. I use Rentometer more to understand generally like the high and the low mm-hmm. that that particular neighborhood is going to get. And that's, that's really what I'm looking at more so than the median is what's the lowest rent in this area and what's the highest rent because that's going to give you your brackets Mm -hmm. and then you can just kind of work within that to to kind of get a baseline yeah another thing that you'll want to look then is at the uh how you know safety reports for your area and you can just do that by logging into the local police department they usually have crime statistics for the last year or for last couple of years you can break that down if they don't have that information you can call the police department and ask them questions and say, Hey, I'm looking at this particular neighborhood. Have you had good luck with that? Um, yes, only because I physically went in uh, yeah. to the police department and talked to them. Mm. They were more than happy to give, just have a quick chat. And the chat was more like, Hey, can you just tell me about this area? Is it trending upwards? How many calls do you get there per week? Like, is it kind of a, a, a the wild west? Are you afraid to go there? Is it just endless stories or is it like now nah, it's pretty it's on the it's on the up and up or it's it's relaxed and chill we don't get too many calls there so you can get some high level information there that's uh that's one way to do it another really good resource is, we'll link to this in the show notes is from the uh, federal financial institutions examination council council which has the most ridiculous url so i'm not even going to put it here <laughs> but it pulls information from the census and it's it lets you get incredibly granular and compare 
certain neighborhoods against other neighborhoods. So you can see, hey, my building's on this street and it says the median income for this block is only 23000 per year. But if I go over to this block, it's actually 72000 And so you can look at that and get some pretty interesting information saying, okay, is there something that's occurring here between these neighborhoods that's making it so that this area is highly desirable and this area is not? Because if you maybe zoomed out just one step further, you might not have gotten that granular distinction between mm-hmm. the two. Yeah. And I will say, after you look at all of this data, nothing beats just walking the street in person because there's things that you won't see in data that you can feel when you're physically there. Um, and it's really tough to, to describe it or to like quantify it. But when you actually go somewhere, you'll get a vibe from it. And it's either going to be, this is a nice area or this is okay. Or this is like a place that I might not want to be at night. So, and that's, sometimes that shows up in data and sometimes it doesn't, but it always will be obvious when you're physically there. Two pro tips here, piggybacking on that idea is go multiple times throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So check it out in the morning, check it out in the afternoon and check it out in the evening. And you might think, okay, well, evenings, that's a no brainer, right? Like definitely go see what it's like after dark. But in the middle of the day can be really helpful too, because if you drive the streets in the middle of the day and you see a bunch of young 20-year-old men just kind of milling milling around, that's not a great sign because it points to them not having jobs and other places to be. Yeah. And I I was once a young man. And you don't want 20-year-old men no- anywhere around this. Milling yes. about, no. That's nothing <laughs> no. good happens between 15 and 25. That whole not not a single thing. It's all I blacked just out the bad entire decisions era. Testosterone. It's not a good mix. Yep. The the other tip here, and I learned this one by accident, was if you're a male, you're going to have a very different perspective on a on a neighborhood than a female will, because we are ingrained and socialized in a different way to perceive threats and dangers in very different ways. Being a dude and walking a neighborhood, you might not pick up on things that a female might. I learned this one just by having, you know, walking an area with a, fr- a female friend and she's like, yeah, I don't like this area at all. And I was like... I was completely fine in it, but my barometer for comfort and her barometer for comfort were entirely different. And then once we got kind of analyzed why that was, I was like, okay, yeah, I can understand that. But remember, 50% of your rentable tenant base is female. And so how they feel in the area is going to play a very large factor. And so that can be a great way just to quickly at a glance be like, hey, is this, what do you feel about this area? So bring a lady friend. Yeah. It's a good rule for life. Just always bring a lady friend. (laughs) They're they're a good balance to our um, our innate <laughs> male <laughs> stupidity, I'll say, yeah. or silliness. Yeah, I like that. It's a good idea. <laughs> awesome. So that is from the from the top, from the fifty thousand view, all the way down to the granular street level. What you're looking for in a market, you know, looking at those economic factors, regulatory factors, and then local market factors. And if you can find a market that makes it through the sifter and comes out the other end and hits all those. Uh, all those boxes, it checks all the boxes, then you might actually have a market worth investing in. I guess the next step then is to actually go and find deals, go find brokers in that area. If you're a passive investor, to go find an operator in that area that you can trust and start vetting them. My guess is if someone goes through all these steps, they're probably not passive. They see this is a pretty active exercise, I feel like. Yeah, this can be a good activity even for passive investors. You Mm -hmm. uh, don't need to go as in depth, but just 
as you're trying to decide which markets that you're interested in, maybe get a feel for the economic factors, get a vague feeling for the regulatory factors and, and understand when a deal comes across. By the time you get to the local level, you will have already decided I want to invest in this area. And then an operator is going to pass a deal along to you and you are then going to say, what do I feel yeah. about that area? And I'll take that back because I actually know a few people who invest in deals that are just genuinely that interested. Yeah. A good handful of them. Nerds. Um, they're not, they're not going to, you know, actually create the same business that we have, but they really do enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You might be somewhere in the middle there. It's not, I guess it's not a binary distinction whether you're active or passive. You might be 100% passive and just want to completely outsource it. Uh, you might also want to peek under the hood and get an idea of what's going on behind the scenes without actually taking on all the risk and doing all the work. Exactly. All good options. Mm-hmm. So let's move on then to our book recommendation of the week. Mm. You, you sitting on a good one this time? Let me see what I've got. I made a little list. But I haven't oh, been marking off what I've recommended so far. So That's okay. We're, we're creating a resource of all the book recommendations that we've made. Mm. We're going to put it on InvictusCapitalVentures.com in the Education Center. So at any point, you can look over there and see all the different books that we've recommended in the past. Mm. Okay. I've got one. Great. Hit me with it. You ready? I am braced. The world needs your fucking ideas. Have I recommended that book on here before? No, I've never even heard of that book. Yeah, it's by a local guy. Uh, A guy named Ben B. Owns a company called Woodchuck. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's uh it's it's pretty much geared towards uh entrepreneurs. But it's actually a really good book. It's on Audible too, so if you want to listen to it, it's great. So if you are an entrepreneur and you're interested in like personal development, uh it's really good. Easy read. And as you can ch- tell from the title, it's it's enjoyable to read. It's not uh dry, it's it's very it's very well written. Um I actually don't know if he's written other books, but it's very well done. Yeah, sounds so, great. Sounds entertaining. Yeah, and then uh, it, it reminds me of uh, the children's book, which is uh, "Go to Fuck to Sleep." <laughs> <laughs> I need to get that. I like that. And there's a new one uh, that's now "Wash Your Fucking Hands." <laughs> <laughs> oh, who writes those? Who's that? I don't know, but it's great. Uh, are they legit kids' books? Mm, I've never read them. The the go the fuck to sleep looks like a kid's book. I don't think you're probably going to read it to your child. I don't. I don't know. Maybe you would. Depends yeah. on what kind of parent you are. Yes. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna order those. Fantastic. All right, guys. So that's gonna that's gonna do it for us this week at Multifamily Investing Made Simple. Hopefully, you found some valuable information in this week's episode. We're gonna be back at it next week. But in the meantime, if you could do us a huge favor, could you pretty pretty please? Go to wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether that's Stitcher or iTunes or uh, if you have like a walkie-talkie, can you go and leave a review? doesn't have to be a great review. Just let us know how we're doing. Give us some feedback, what you like, what you didn't like. That gives us an opportunity to learn, to grow, and hopefully get better over time. So as always, thanks a ton for, for stopping and listening. We'll catch you, catch you next week, guys. See you next week. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Multifamily Investing Made Simple. If you enjoyed the show, could you do us a massive favor? Head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback, it means the world to us as it helps us grow and spread the word about multifamily investing. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So fire this episode over to any friends or family who you think could benefit from learning all about multifamily investing. Thanks, guys. We appreciate every single one of you, and we'll see you on the next show.